0: Well, Nathaniel Wilson just read the Palm Sunday text out of Mark's Gospel. That story is represented in some way, shape, or form in all four of the Gospel accounts, which means it's pretty important to the in the Bible. Um, it's full of symbolism and theological meat. And over the years, I've I've preached that text, various ways. I've talked about, uh, you know, the way that God, uh, that Jesus is uh, the humble king. Uh, We've looked at that theme. We've looked at his generosity and sacrifice, and we've simply walked through that narrative and uncovered some of the awesome symbolism and uh, fulfilled prophecy and, and things like that. But this year, I'm struck by a different angle to that story, I'm struck by the contrast between the crowds that on Sunday are in a frenzy over Jesus, singing Hosanna, laying their coats down before him as their king, waving palm branches in hopeful expectation that this Jesus guy is their Messiah. And then less than a week later, after Jesus is arrested, falsely accused, beaten, humiliated, and crucified, the crowds, or before he's crucified, the crowds call for Pontius Pilate. To, to kill him and to release some revolutionary named Barabbas. On Palm Sunday, Jesus is the focus of the crowd's hopes. On Good Friday, Jesus is the focus of the crowd's venom and frustration and anger and indifference. Palm Sunday, Jesus is the darling of the crowds, he's the popular candidate. Wish we had one of those. Uh, <laughs> Good Friday, Jesus, is the heel of the crowds. He's the scapegoat. What happened between Palm Sunday and Good Friday? What changed? This I can say with certainty. Jesus did not change. He didn't change his message. He didn't change his mind. He didn't change his mission. He didn't change his methods. He was always the servant king. He was always the humble Messiah. He was always, first and foremost, the obedient Son of God. He was not ever a power-hungry, revolutionary war general. Jesus did not change. He was always going to give himself. He always knew who he was. He still knows who he is. It would appear then that the crowds changed. It would appear that on Palm Sunday, the crowds were for Jesus, but on Good Friday, something happened to make them change their minds. On the surface, it would be very difficult to argue against the crowds not changing their minds. Like, they they just see things differently from Palm Sunday to Good Friday, at least on the surface. And I want to go beneath the surface a little bit today. After meditating on this text and just considering my own heart, I've come to the conclusion that maybe the crowds didn't really change their minds about Jesus at all. Instead, I wonder if the crowds were very out of touch with what was going on in their own hearts altogether. I think they were blinded to who Jesus really was because they were so hungry for whom they wanted Jesus to be. They would rather believe what they wanted to believe about him than see him for who he really is. So in essence, they weren't really living in reality. The crowds in the story of Palm Sunday and Good Friday are a striking example to me of why we need spiritual formation. Think of your Christian life, or your spiritual life if you're not yet a Christian, as a sailboat out at sea without an engine. You're on a jury from the home port of who you are to the distant port of who you are in Christ, of who God made you to be. And just because we're on the West Coast and in Bellingham, let's just, mental picture, home port of who you started off as is Bellingham, and Christ-likeness is Hawaii. That's a nice place, right? So we're on a journey there in a sailboat without an engine. Without spiritual formation, you don't have a sail. You don't have a rudder. You don't have a compass. You don't have any charts. You're passively at the whim of the wind and the current. You simply, all you can do really is accept your position wherever you are and respond. You strain with your oars, let's say you have oars, but you're not even sure you're going in the right direction. You're just floating. All your hopes of what you will become turn to wishes because, in effect, you're lost at sea. You have some vague idea about what the island of Christ's likeness may look like, but you've been at sea, floating, bobbing up and down for so long that you're wondering if maybe, in the the end of it, this is all that there is anyway. You're controlled by your feelings, your passions, and you have the nagging thought that maybe your thoughts aren't even trustworthy anymore. You're literally like a wave tossed to and fro, without spiritual formation. That's, I think, what the crowds were like, so possessed by their wishes of what a Messiah ought to be that they couldn't see the reality, or at least accept the reality, of who Jesus actually was. But spiritual formation, in a Christian context, is not passive. It is an intentional, active response to the grace and initiative and power of Jesus to become more like Jesus. Spiritual formation in a Christian context is an intentional, active response to the initiative, grace, and power of Jesus to become more like Jesus. Consider your life as a sailboat again. We might see the discipline of considering our longing to be like Jesus as a compass that gives us a bearing. Remember in the first week of this series in Sacred Rhythms, we got in touch with our longing and saw that deep down, we have a longing for God, a longing for Jesus. And so if we let that be our true north, our compass bearing, we know where we're supposed to be heading. Then we talked about resting in Jesus with silence and solitude, practicing that discipline. Rather than seeing every storm and swell of waves as a source of intense stress in our lives, we can rest in the fact that Jesus is Lord of the sea. The same one who said with the word, hush, and the massive storm on the Sea of Galilee became calm instantly. Plus, he can walk on water. It's awesome. He's with us. He's guiding us. We can rest in him. The discipline of Lectio Divina puts us in touch with what Jesus is saying to us through the scriptures. This discipline is like using a chart on a sailing voyage. It can help us discern our course in life and where we're at relative to everything else. And honoring God with our bodies, as we discussed two weeks ago, helps us have a healthy healthy life and longevity to embrace the direction that Jesus is taking us. It's like the sail that catches the wind. The Spirit does the work, but we're receptive and cooperate with what God is doing. This evening, I want to talk about the spiritual practice of being honest with Jesus. Just being honest with Jesus. And one method of getting honest with Jesus is the practice of the prayer of examine. The idea is to take a truthful look at the last 24 hours of your life, but not just by yourself, but invite Jesus to look at it with you, alongside you. To keep the sailing metaphor, the practice of examine is like checking your position at the end of each day to make sure that where you've been going is the right direction. When I was in the Coast Guard, We had advanced electronics and radar and satellite communications. We had all the cutting-edge gadgets for navigation you could think of. But still, in this modern day, at the end of each day, the quartermaster would go up topside, get out of the pilot house, use a magnetic compass and a sextant to check celestial bodies against the horizon. Sextants have been used since the 1700s. Why, with all this technology, would the quartermaster do that every evening? because those things can be wrong. Electronics fail, and so once a day, just to make sure they go back and they find something that never moves. I mean, if the stars start going all crazy, we've got other problems, right? Like, and they find, um, make sure that they're going in the right direction. In a sense, that's exactly what we do in the prayer of examine. We invite Jesus to review our day with us, slow down long enough to reflect with the intent of seeing, hey, where was Jesus working in my life today? Where did I join him? I didn't even realize that when I I said that to that person or encouraged that person, wow, that was Jesus leading me into an opportunity to do that. Where did I totally miss him today? When I was too busy and my three-year-old's tugging on my leg, trying to tell me something she made in school that day, and I just kept saying, hold on, hold on, I'm finishing a thought. Where did I miss him today? Where are we headed in a direction to be formed in the image of Christ? And where today did I make choices that are actually deforming me, bringing me off course from Christ's likeness? The examine is all about slowing down long enough to give thanks to God for the gifts that he gives us each day, the simple things that we take for granted. And we get honest with Jesus about how we're actually feeling, about the condition of our hearts. We align ourselves with the psalmist who at the end of Psalm 139 says, Search me, O God, and know me. Know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts. And see if there be any hurtful way in me. Lead me in the everlasting way. It's not that God doesn't know what your day was like. It's that we often don't really know what went on in our day. Now, sure, if I were to ask you what you did yesterday or what you've been up to today, you could give me the plot points, but it'd kind of be like a teenager. Like, how was school today? Fine. What'd you do? Went to school. Came home, had lunch. You know, it's like pulling teeth to get information. It's not just teenagers. Try a fourth grader, same thing. We could go through the plot points. I went up, I got up today, I went to work, I made widgets, came home. And if something really significant happened, a a deeply moving thing, a big loss or a big joy, you could probably tell me about that. You could probably remember those things. But unless we're intentional, we rarely see how Jesus was with us in the monotony. That's where he's with us most of the time because, I I don't know about you guys, but most of my life is pretty, like, monotonous. We do a lot of the same stuff every day. And our television shows and, and our culture likes to talk about mountaintop experience, I've said this before, you watch a sitcom for half an hour and everything's funny and everybody's doing stuff, but they never show them sleeping or taking showers or go to the bathroom. I mean, it's like the, the stuff you do most of the time. Jesus in the, is in those places too, in our deepest thoughts as well. If we're not intentional, we don't see where he is. How we were maybe fudging the truth to our boss a little bit to make ourselves look a little bit better than we actually are or how we were overly critical of a friend or a coworker behind their back. The examine helps us to ask the question, why do I feel that way toward that person? What can I do about it that's more constructive than talking to others about it? The prayer of examine helps us to see these things, to get them in the open, to give thanks to God for the joys and to confess our sinful sorrows. The examine is an opportunity to invite Jesus to help us heal the more, uh, to heal those inner parts and to be more mindful of him and where he's at throughout the day. Socrates said, the unexamined life is not worth living. That might be a little extreme. I might say the unexamined life is a life oblivious to what living actually is. Because you can keep on going through the motions of life, but if it's not an examined life, if it's not reflective You're just kind of on a treadmill. The prayer of examine takes all of 10 to 15 minutes a day. The average person spends more time than 10 or 15 minutes in the bathroom, watching TV, commuting to work, surfing the internet for 10 or 15 minutes at least a day, right? How many, no hands, check Facebook longer than that, right? Why is it so difficult for us to slow down for 10 to 15 minutes and reflect with Jesus? Well, the easy answer is, of course, well, I'm too busy. Fair enough. I look out, I see some very hardworking people, people with full schedules, I get it. But we always, in reality, find time for that which is important to us. I mean, I know people who love to sleep in, but will wake up at 5 a.m. if the right soccer team is playing in Europe, right? That's what it's telling. Um, Or I know people who wish they had more time to read, but can fill you in on the latest TV show they just binge-watched. I'm using my own examples here, so... But you get it, we, we, we always have time for that which is important to us. And I would wager to bet if I were to ask you, hey, this prayer of examine thing, as I've explained it so far, if we see where Jesus is working in our life and how we can help us grow more like him, I, I would wager to bet most of you would say, yeah, that sounds like a worthwhile practice. That sounds like a good idea. So it's not that you don't think it's not worth it. It's not that you don't have the time. So what keeps us from being honest with Jesus? I think there's two main issues. Obviously, I'm simplifying. This is a sermon. Okay. Two main issues, I think, that keep us from really engaging in honesty with Jesus. And I think, I think that most of us deal with both of these issues. The first one is fear and shame. Straight up. I just think, that that is a big stumbling block for most of us. Somewhere deep down, we don't really want to sit with Jesus and look at our day because we think he's going to judge us and shame us and that we're going to see our ugliness in a way that makes us feel even worse than when we sat down in the first place. It reminds me of the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4. As the story goes, this woman who is a Samaritan uh, comes to the well a Samaritan in those days was a person of mixed ethnicity, part Jew, part non-Jew. And so the Jews generally looked down upon the Samaritan people. We also learned that this woman went by herself to the well in the middle of the day. In those days, most women would go as a group to the well two times a day, once in the cool of the morning, once in the cool of the evening. They did this for multiple reasons. One was for safety, traveling in numbers. The other was, frankly, social You're at home all day, cooking, keeping up with the kids. And twice a day, you get to go with this group of women out to the well and get water and talk and catch up on all the gossip and what's going on around town. It is telling, then, that the Samaritan woman goes out to the well by herself at a time when she was not expecting, in fact, she was hoping to God, probably, that she wouldn't run into anyone. How awkward, then, when she runs into a Jewish man. In those days, women and men weren't supposed to be seen together or interact together unless they were married or they were relatives with each other. So it's a little awkward situation when the Samaritan woman runs into Jesus. If anyone were to come up at that point, they could have been called out for scandalous, um, you know, cohorting or something like that. Okay. (laughs) So there they are at this well. And Jesus isn't concerned at all, it seems, in social convention. He isn't worried about breaking these boundaries. He engages her in conversation. He's concerned with the person who's standing in front of him. He doesn't care that she's a woman. He doesn't care that she's a Samaritan woman. He cares about her because she's a person. And he engages in conversation that at first seems kind of superficial. Can you get me a drink of water? I'm thirsty. Basic human need. Cross-culture, cross-time. But by the end, this woman realizes that Jesus knows all about her life. He knows that she is avoiding other women because while they're going out to talk about town gossip, she is the town gossip. She had been married to five other, other men, which is scandalous in that culture, five marriages, and then was living with the man who was not even her husband. Rather than bring up this woman's baggage to shame her, though, Jesus offers her relationship and eternal life. By being real with this woman, Jesus enables her to move past her superficiality. She's able to drop the mask she was wearing as this strong, independent woman going into the well at noon all by herself. And instead, I mean, there's no movie, you can't see the picture happening, but I almost imagine that you know when you're a little relaxed, your shoulders do this? Like, I, just, I just imagine like, oh, this guy already knows my history and he hasn't run away and he hasn't shamed me. I'm just going to ask what I've always wanted to ask a, a teacher. How do I get close to God? You know, Samaritans say we worship God on this way. You guys say it's in Jerusalem. What's the deal? How can I actually be close to God? How do I actually worship God? my creator. That's the question. That's the question so often buried under our sin and our, sh- and our shame that, that we, we keep from asking Jesus because we put up these walls and these fronts and these masks. We're afraid to press in. With Jesus, we can come clean and into the light. And like this woman, once we realize how much he loves us and he offers us life, we become able to face our fears with him and to get real with him. So we learn from Jesus' treatment with the Samaritan woman that our sin, no matter how ugly or shameful, doesn't surprise him, and it doesn't repel him. In fact, when we're honest with Jesus, we end up desiring more holiness. If shame or fear are keeping you from being honest, you can be safe coming into the light with Jesus. But sometimes it's not our shame or our fears that keep us from being honest with Jesus. Sometimes it's our self-righteousness and our self-sufficiency. Mark 10 tells the story that we know as the rich young ruler. This man, it's culturally safe to say, would have been highly esteemed amongst his peers. He was wealthy, and he was devout. And in fact, not in in biblical theology, but in popular theology in that day, it was believed that if you were devout, that you would be wealthy. It's a little bit kind of like prosperity doctrine uh, in the Jewish setting. So by virtue of this man being wealthy and a landowner, and having gone to synagogue regularly and keeping the commandments, his peers would then deduce, oh, you're blessed by God, because you have this wealth he would have been the poster boy for what it means to be a faithful Jew. Full of confidence, he approaches Jesus, who is growing in popularity as a teacher and as a healer, and some people were saying he was a prophet, and some people were even saying that maybe he was the Messiah. So the man comes up to Jesus and says, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, well, you know the commandments. Do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he says to him, Teacher, I have kept all these things since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, felt a love for him. That's in the text. That's so powerful. He loved him enough to say this. One thing you lack. Go and sell your possessions, and give them to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven, and come and follow me. Jesus felt a love for him, and then spoke those words. The narrator says, At these words he was saddened, and he went away grieving, for he was one who owned much property. Now we get to the heart of this encounter, Jesus knows that this man has an idolatry problem. Have you noticed when he lists off the commandments that the guy's supposed to keep? He only does the five that, in, that are interpersonal. He doesn't start with the foundational ones. Thou shall have no other gods besides me. You shouldn't make any graven images. This is, those are the idolatry ones. Jesus already knows this man's heart as he comes up to him. So he, he does the, the low-hanging fruit ones, and the man's able to say, I do all of those things. But the one thing this man doesn't do is put God above everything else in his life. The young man asks, what good thing must I do to get or possess eternal life? This man's idolatry problem is not his wealth. This man's idolatry problem is his self-sufficiency. He asks, what good thing must I do to possess eternal life. Did you catch it? How presumptuous that this man thinks he can do anything good without God, that it will take just one good thing, like a charitable donation, to get eternal life, as if it were a thing that one could purchase and put in your pocket and walk around with it. I've got my card that shows I'm in the Eternal Life Club. I bought a membership. Eternal life is not something we get. It's something we enter. It's not something you add to your collection of trophies and achievements. It's a relational journey with Jesus. You enter it, you walk it out, you live it, you don't own it. This man's idolatry is not his wealth, it's his self-righteousness. It's his belief that he can do something in his own strength to obtain eternal life. In this encounter, Jesus loves this young man enough to be honest with him. Jesus brings up his idol, and I believe that Jesus would have helped this man slay that idol if he would have followed him, if he would have said, you know what, you're onto something, you know me more than I, le- you know, you're letting on, and I believe that, that Jesus would have helped him, and, and I have a hope in my heart that, you know, this young guy, at some point in his life, maybe remembered those words and turned his life to Jesus, we don't know the end of that story, but that's the kind of guy I am, I like to hope in the best, so there you go. The point is that sometimes we think we're doing just fine without examining our life. But in His grace, Jesus will help us to see that the things that we can be thankful for, but also the things that we need help with. He'll reveal those things in our life that maybe we're putting above our relationship with Him. He can help us to see, in His grace, a sinful blind spot. He can help us discern when our actions, even our good actions, are really selfishly motivated. And He can forgive us. And He can put a new vision in our hearts. or more abundant life. Practicing the prayer of examine can help us to grow in honesty with Jesus. And for those of you who are interested, I've got some some booklets that look like this. I handed these out last year as well, so some of you may have this. Um, This is from Loyola Press because the prayer of examine is an Ignatian practice, Ignatius of Loyola. Um, They're through that door in the table on the right, you can pick one up uh, if you're interested, and it just helps you walk through the prayer of examine. I'm going to go over the high points of the prayer now, um, but if you want more detail, I've got lots of information. I can email it to you, and also this book is a great place to start, so consider that. As I've said throughout these weeks in this series, we're being introduced to lots of spiritual practices. In no way, shape, or form do I expect all of us to practice all of these things every day or every week. What I'm hoping to do is get in touch with that longing that we all have for Jesus, and Jesus will invite us into one of these practices uh, depending on where you're at in your life. I know some of you have really taken to the silence and solitude. You found that you're just running at full tilt, and you've enjoyed that space of just being with Jesus Um, that's awesome. I'm not adding, don't add all this stuff to that. Some of you have really taken to reading the Bible through Lectio Divina because it's a different way. Typically, we just read through the Bible by getting information from it, but Lectio helps us to actually hear the text, and some of you have been embracing that. What I hope to do here is give you something so that either if it strikes a chord today, that's great, or maybe somewhere down the road you're going to say, I need to be more reflective. What was that thing that Chris talked about? And you could have this somewhere stuffed away in your bookshelf. Okay, now I'm going to be briefly walk through the five steps of the examine. First, you want to find a quiet place, preferably by yourself, but I know as a parent of three that can be hard to do, Uh, but remind yourself that the Holy Spirit is with you and has been all day. You're simply remembering that reality that the spirit is with you and has been with you all day and find yourself in the presence of god now some people do this at the end of the day that makes sense if you are recollecting the last 24 hours i do the beginning of the day because i'm a morning guy so that's just what i do and i think back 24 hours eight of them are sleeping so that's great the second thing you do once you're in that space and just recognizing the presence of god is you just consider the last 24 hours what in the last 24 hours do I have to be thankful for? What gifts did I receive from God? Something in creation? Something nice that someone did for you or said to you? Something that maybe God revealed to you uh, in scripture or on a walk? These are all gifts from Him. Is there a moment or an event that stands out? Give thanks. Let your heart be grateful. These first two steps, by the way, being still with God and recognizing his good gifts to you, can help by themselves bring a greater awareness of God's activity in your life. Thanksgiving to God is a cure for weariness and for pride. So even if you do two out of five, you're a winner. Okay. Third, you take a few moments to survey the past 24 hours, and this whole exercise takes All five steps together should only take 10 or 15 minutes, so you're not like going through painstakingly every second of the day. In fact, uh, Ruth Haley Barton and other writers have thought about it in, in terms of seeing your life like on a DVD and kind of sitting there with Jesus watching over it and just skipping the commercials and going to the highlights, okay? Where was Jesus in your day? What role did he play? Where did you miss him? Where did you not even consider him? What feelings rise up? What were your motives? These are the types of questions to ask. What brought zest to your life? What did you enjoy? Why? What made you cringe as you watched it with Jesus? Why? This third step, watching your life with Jesus, if you really take to that watching your life on a dvd with him it's not like this horrible sadistic thing where like the first time you watch a rated r movie with your parents it's like oh i forgot this is awkward you know this i didn't remember they said that or did that or (laughs) it's not supposed to be like that it's it's an honest look at your life to see where you're at and where you are in following jesus it's not about condemnation but growth professional athletes watch tape right not so the coach can beat them up, but just to say, listen, look, we could have done this better, right? Or, um, uh, you, you know, musicians listen to themselves. I remember in counseling classes, my goodness, I had to find these guinea pig people, and I would do my whole counseling thing, and we'd have to record it, and then I'd have to listen to myself. It's agonizing. Absolutely. All you counselors know this stuff, right? It's just agonizing. Like, I said that? Oh, my gosh. Oh, it's horrible. How do people ever meet with me? But thankfully, I grew tremendously doing that. Uh, the same thing can be true of just sitting with Jesus and looking at your life with him alongside, realizing that he's in your life, whether you recognize it or not. It doesn't matter whether you do this practice, like he already knows, so cat's out of the bag. Jesus is so gracious, so compassionate. He already knows your weaknesses. He already died to forgive all the stuff that you're embarrassed about. So the fourth step then, once it's all out in the open like that, is just simply confess those areas of sin that come up in the examine. Thank the Holy Spirit even for revealing them to you. Thank Jesus for forgiving you. Express maybe your sorrow or your disappointment, your feelings of powerlessness, and then bless the Father for His undying love and hospitality toward you. The fifth step, the final step, is called Hope-Filled Resolution. Is there something that God is inviting you to pay attention to? Is there something the Spirit might be prompting you to give up? Is there an area of powerlessness or a sin that seems to have mastery over you? This is the time to just pray for help. I offer this prayer of examine to you as One of many ways, uh, being honest with Jesus. It's not a magic bullet. It's not a magic technique. There's nothing, uh, you're not going to be super spiritual if you do this. You're not going to be a failure if you don't. But it's a time-tested way that people have entered into an honest relationship with God. And it's powerful to see that the God who created you, the God who put on flesh, dwelt among us, died for us, And Rose isn't just distant. He isn't just watching all of this take place. He's with us in the monotony and in the joys and in the sorrows. And if we get more of that realization alone, the examine is worth it. Lord, thank you that you are with us. You are Emmanuel, the with us God. Thank you that your arms right now are not folded, foot tapping, disappointed, angry. But like the father in the prodigal son, I imagine you're on the edge of your seat, waiting for us to notice, waiting for us to return. Arms open wide. For an embrace, not a rejection. Lord, I thank you that you know the barriers each one has, the barriers to believing that you could really be that good. And that's where I pray for the miracle, the work of the Spirit to help break down those walls. Help us, Lord. Help us to believe how good you are, how much you love us, that to be honest with you is to find our true home, our true life. Amen.